This episode does include gruesome details from true events. Listener discretion advised for those under the age of 18. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Crime Vine podcast. I am your host, Felicity Brooke. And if you are new here, basically, this is a true crime related podcast. And occasionally we talk about some conspiracy theories, but not really too much. I like to stick more with the true crime cases, you know, abduction, murder, all that stuff. So if you are new here, welcome. Also, if you could please take a few moments and rate or review this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. And also don't forget to follow us over on Instagram at the Crime Vine Podcast. We are also on Twitter at the Crime Vine PO1. I'm not as active on Twitter as I am on Instagram. I post at least once a day, if not two, three times a day on Instagram. And I'd love to get to know you guys and talk to you guys. So if you want to join the family, go over there and give us a follow and interact with us. And I also wanted to give a huge thank you to everybody who supports me and who follows me and who is so supportive of this podcast. This is honestly such a passion of mine to research true crime and to talk. I like talking about it, but you can't just talk about it every day with, you know, normal people. I try talking about it at work and everyone thinks I'm going to murder them when I'm really not. I'm just interested in this you know, topic, this true crime community. So, um, yeah, I really wanted to say thank you. I have received such amazing comments from you guys. I've even gotten some DMS over the last few days from you guys saying, um, how much you love that, uh, the podcast. And there was one person that even said that they wish I could upload daily, man. I wish I could upload daily, but unfortunately researching these cases takes, um, sometimes it takes weeks. It definitely, definitely takes days, hours, you know, it takes a while. And as soon as I'm done recording or as soon as I'm done researching one case, literally like five seconds later, I'm already looking for a new case to research because it just takes that much time. And to do this on a weekly basis, it really, it's kind of difficult because it does take such a long time in research. And if I see that a case is going to, you know, take longer then I'm going to jump, like put a pause on that case and then jump to a new one, um, just to research it so I can upload for you guys every week. It's definitely a process and it does take a lot of time but thank you guys so much for everyone who's you know supporting me who's listening every single week and who's always like the first people there to listen when I upload it really honestly keeps me wanting to do this and it's just amazing so now that we've gone into that sappy like thank you guys so much I love you type thing let's get into the case and the reason why you clicked on this episode so if you don't already grab yourself a drink because this vine will rope you in Alyssa Turney was born on April 3rd, 1984. Alyssa's mother, Barbara, married a man named Mike Turney when Alyssa was just three years old. Mike had three kids and Barbara had two, and a little later, Mike and Barbara had a daughter together named Sarah. The family was often referred to as the Brady Bunch. In an interview, Mike said that their family bond was really strong, so strong that the prefix step was not allowed to be used in their home. Barbara passed away in the 90s due to cancer, and Alyssa was just nine years old when this happened. Mike's sons, who were all grown up by this time, did not live with them, so Mike raised the two girls by himself. Alyssa's sister, Sarah, described her as strong, caring, kind, always up for anything, spontaneous, and always up for fun. She did typical teenage stuff. She went to the mall, she hung out with friends. She was a bit of a wild child. Sarah did say that Mike over-exaggerated how rebellious Alyssa actually was. It was May 17, 2001, and it was Alyssa's last day of junior year when Mike picked her up from school to go out for lunch. 
During lunch, however, they had an argument after Alyssa asked for more freedom, but Mike wasn't having any of that and refused to allow it. He told her as long as she was under his roof, she was to follow his rules. Mike said that when they returned home, Alyssa stormed off to her bedroom, and soon after that, he went to go pick Sarah up from a friend's house after school and run some errands. Supposedly, he called the house to check up on Alyssa, but she wouldn't answer. Once Mike picked Sarah up, he asked her to keep calling Alyssa, but she didn't get any answers. Alyssa and Sarah were treated very differently from one another. Mike was constantly on Alyssa's case about absolutely everything, and on the other hand, Sarah was allowed to do pretty much whatever she wanted. That day, Sarah had been smoking some cigarettes with friends, and one of Mike's only rules to her was to not smoke cigarettes because that's how their mother got cancer, and he didn't want that for her. Sarah was so worried that her dad was going to say something and she was going to get into trouble, so her and her friends doused themselves with perfume to mask the smell. But when Mike picked Sarah up, he didn't say a single word about the smell Sarah was carrying. Instead, he kept telling Sarah to call Alyssa. Looking back, Sarah said that she thinks this was very odd because you clearly would have been able to tell she was smoking. What 12-year-old just smells like cigarettes with a hint of perfume? Ten minutes after Sarah was picked up, they got back to their house, and Sarah ran straight to Alyssa's room. But she wasn't there. Sarah noticed that Alyssa's backpack was dumped out all over the ground, and she heard a buzzing coming from Alyssa's dresser, and that was where Sarah found her phone, and she also found a note that read, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I'm really going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Experts reviewed this note and determined that it was Alyssa's handwriting most likely, but they weren't able to determine when it was written. According to Alyssa's boyfriend at the time, she went to his woodshop class at lunchtime to tell him she was leaving and that she would see him later that evening to go to a party. So if Alyssa did run away, then why was she making plans with her boyfriend for later that night? Wouldn't her boyfriend be one of the people she trusts the most? and would confide in him? Wouldn't she tell him she was running away? It just doesn't add up. Another weird thing is if she was really planning to run away, why did she go to school that day? And why did she get into a fight with her dad about wanting more freedom? Why would she even bring it up if she wasn't planning to stick around? Sarah said that her dad made some phone calls after they returned to the house calling Alyssa's boyfriend, John, and some friends to see if they knew where she was. There was no formal search that night no one was looking for her. A few weeks before she went missing, Mike actually contacted her Aunt Lynette, who is Barbara's sister. Mike told Lynette that he caught Alyssa smoking some pot and if she could live with Lynette for a little bit during the summer, which was unusual since Barbara's passing, their relationship wasn't the best. Lynette has since said she seems to think Mike was thinking she was going to say no, or he knew that she was going to say no, and that he called to kind of set things up and make it look more like Alyssa really did run away to California. Mike kind of freaked out after Lynette said yes, and then he changed the whole plan and said he didn't need Lynette anymore. People have since said that they think it's because Alyssa would have gone to Lynette's and tell her everything Mike possibly did to her at home. Mike filed a missing persons report, and this is when he told them that Alyssa had run away to her aunt's house in California. Given the evidence with the argument, the note, and it being the last day of school, police determined it was a runaway and didn't put out any Amber Alerts or Missing Persons Alert. They didn't search for her or anything. 
Literally nothing was done. They had also learned that when Alyssa went missing, she had a decent amount of money in her bank account, $1,800 to be exact. Here's the weird thing. Why did she take $300 from Mike if she was saving this money? She had money, so why take $300? But here's the even weirder part. Alyssa didn't take any money in her account or even touch anything with that account for seven years. She also didn't take anything important with her. And why in the note would she say she saved all of that money but not take any of it? Several people started saying that Mike and Alyssa always butted heads. Mike was extremely strict with Alyssa, kind of like he was obsessed with her. He would rummage through her things, show up to her work and see if she was there when she said she was and just watch her and make sure she was doing her job. And he would monitor her phone calls. This man kept a very close eye on her. Sarah said if you looked at how they were both treated by their father at 17 years old, it was night and day. Alyssa was not allowed to go to parties or drink with friends and he monitored everything she did. However, Sarah's boyfriend moved in the house when she was 17 and Mike bought her a mini fridge and filled it with beer. Alyssa's boyfriend John said that Alyssa told him that Mike would sexually assault her when she was younger. One of her teachers even said that Alyssa talked about the kind of stuff happening, but the teacher never reported it, so it's just kind of like another one of those things. One of the memories Alyssa shared with John was that Mike had picked her up from school early one day and took her to an area that was unoccupied and sexually abused her. Even her friends said that Alyssa told them Mike sexually abused her. However, Mike still denies this. David, who was Mike's nephew, had stayed at their house for about six months between 98 and 99. He got home from work late one night and everyone in the house was sleeping, so he decided to watch a VHS tape labeled Dr. Doolittle. But when he played the tape, he saw a woman laying on the couch with nothing but shorts on and Mike was covering the girl's face with a newspaper. But David said he was pretty sure that it was Alyssa. In the next clip, there was another woman. David said it could have been one of Alyssa's friends who was also only in shorts and Mike was covering her face. And Mike was just sitting in the room. David said he was so disturbed by this tape that he just packed up all of his stuff and left. He was wondering why these women were just laying there, like they were drugged or like what happened to them. This was never verified to be true, but of course Mike says it was not. He said that David was just a drunk living in the house, always drunk and that he had to kick him out. So now it's about a week since Alyssa disappeared and a phone call came to the house around 5 a.m. Everyone was sleeping. Mike claims that it was Alyssa and that she was very aggravated and basically yelling at him. Mike said he called the police right after and asked them to trace the phone number and they apparently told him no. Um, what? First of all, I doubt the police would say no, especially when this person was filed as a missing person. So Mike began posting flyers himself to see if anyone had seen her. He contacted the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and he even sued the phone company for records of that call from Melissa earlier in the morning. The number was traced back to a payphone in Riverside County, California. Now years have passed and there has been nothing on Alyssa, no leads or anything. Now let's fast forward to 2006. Mike got a call from Detective Murphy. There is the serial killer Thomas Heimer who was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Sandra Goodman, a woman he was traveling with in 2003. Goodman was found murdered under her bed in 2001. She had been strangled. Heimer was caught driving her car the next day. 
Heimer wrote letters to police in which he reportedly described every murder he had committed. He claimed to have killed 21 victims, most of whom were adolescent girls. While being interviewed by authorities, Heimer pointed to a picture of Alyssa. He claimed that he had sexual relations with her in a motel before killing her. He said he dumped her dismembered body parts at a recycling center. He also described Alyssa as a heroin addict and mentioned sexual traits that did not add up with what Alyssa's boyfriend had revealed. And Alyssa's family and friends said that she was not addicted to heroin. I think people would know if she was addicted to heroin. There are some very obvious warning signs with someone who is addicted and everyone said that they didn't see any. This led authorities to question Heimer's account. Back in 2003, he was sentenced to life in prison for murdering a young woman. This man even confessed to killing J.C. Lee Dugard, which I'm sure as most of you know, she's still very much alive today. The FBI still decided to interview him and he was able to successfully identify Alyssa's picture in a photo lineup. It wasn't until 2008 that Alyssa's case started to really be taken seriously by any detectives. You know how many leads they missed out on? Do we not know what happened to this day because it took detectives seven years to really pick up this case up and start taking it seriously? Heimer was given a polygraph test, which he failed, and he kept changing his story so the police realized that this man was just was not credible and was probably doing this for attention. Now, shockingly, detectives figured out that Mike had a surveillance system at the house, which was a big step for authorities and could have been the only thing between them and finding out what actually happened to Alyssa. He had cameras on the outside of the house and on the inside of the house. I mean, he even had a camera hidden in the air vent filming the living room. This man had cameras hidden all over the house, secretly surveilling what was going on. When the authorities questioned him about these cameras, he denied that he was spying on his children and he said they were simply for security. However, the, they found out that he was actually filming them and when the authorities asked for the tapes, Mike would not hand them over. He said that he's already checked them and there's nothing of value to them. Mind you, police kept saying that they might be able to find Alyssa leaving the house and get what she was wearing or what she took with her, but Mike kept telling them that there was nothing. So police tried telling him that there could be something on there that meant nothing to Mike and something he wouldn't notice, but it might mean something to the police and something they could pick up on. There was one instance that Mike filmed Alyssa and her boyfriend making out on the couch and he even showed this to Sarah at one point. There was even a passive recording system on the home phone recording every call. Mike was a man who documented everything. He had a lot of lawsuits he was going through at the time. Sarah said she didn't suspect anything because, in her words, she was brainwashed. She thought Mike was doing all of this to protect Alyssa, and she thought that Alyssa was always in danger like Mike had made her believe. Now things get a little more weird. Sarah asked Mike to take down the cameras from the vents because Alyssa was no longer there and he didn't need to monitor her anymore. And he did. He even went as far as to get Sarah a camera detector to make sure Sarah felt safe and that he wasn't recording her without her knowing. According to Aunt Lynette, back in 2001, Mike said that the tapes were off that day and he wasn't recording and he also said that he offered the tapes to the police but they weren't interested. So he's contradicting himself here. He's saying that they, that, you know, they weren't being recorded that day, but then again, he's saying that, oh, there's nothing of value to the police. So he claimed that he already saw the tapes and there was nothing of value and he claimed to have gotten rid of them, 
so the, these tapes were never seen by detectives. As it turns out, Mike used to be a deputy in the 70s, so he should know that these tapes could be groundbreaking for this case and to not get rid of any evidence, unless he's hiding something. He also claimed that the 5 a.m. phone call Alyssa had made wasn't recorded because he turned the system off that day. Okay, so let's get this straight. Why on the day Alyssa just so happens to disappear, the surveillance tapes weren't recording, but then they were and they were nothing of value, but also the phone recording system was also turned off a week later, just on one day though of the 5 a.m. call. Things really aren't adding up here. Also, let's not forget that he was a deputy in the 70s. He can make someone look like a runaway and not a missing person. Mike even sold his car a year later, and Sarah said that Mike had two of the same trucks. One was a family car, and the other one they never saw, so police weren't able to even search the last car she was in. Mike was the only person in the family refusing to do interviews with the police, but he claimed otherwise. So far, this man seems like a compulsive liar, and he's not able to keep his story straight. Now, police are starting to get really suspicious of Mike. Since Mike wasn't cooperating, Sarah became the contacting point of the family to the police. Sarah was contacted by local authorities asking her to come down to the station. She told them she had a test the next day, but they assured her it wouldn't take much time. Police then told her that they thought Mike was behind Alyssa's disappearance. They had reason to believe Mike had abused Alyssa. Officers searched the family's home while Sarah was at the station. Police found more homemade tapes of Alyssa along with contracts Mike allegedly made Alyssa sign. One of these was dated a year before Alyssa's disappearance, reportedly claiming that he had never abused her. Detectives then asked Alyssa's friends and boyfriend about the suspected abuse. They confirmed that she'd spoken to them of Mike attempting to assault her when she was younger. The craziest part of all of this is no one in Alyssa's family, not her Aunt Lynette or her Aunt Teresa, or even Sarah knew that Mike had picked Alyssa up from school earlier that day. How they all found out was because ABC's 2020 did a special on Alyssa's case. This is how the family found out Mike picked Alyssa up from school early. Can you imagine not knowing that your father picked your sister up from school early and then turning on 2020 on the TV and seeing that, you know, like, oh my gosh, is this true or is this not true? How come I didn't know this? How come I didn't know this about my own sister's case? It was when that show aired was when Sarah became very suspicious of her dad. Mike claims that the reason Alyssa wanted to get picked up early was so she could break up with her boyfriend and so she could avoid him at school and that she would break up with him later that day. So if that's the case, then why did she tell her boyfriend that she was leaving school right before she left? Why did she tell him she was going to see him later at the party? It's not adding up. None of this is making sense. And according to all her friends, her and her boyfriend had a really good relationship, so it's really hard to believe that she wanted to break up with him. According to Sarah, Mike would start fights between Alyssa and John, and he would then record them, and he presented it to the police as evidence that it may have been her boyfriend. Okay, so Mike is now saying that there was foul play between Alyssa and someone else, when in the beginning he was saying that she ran away to California to live with her aunt? Right. 
Out of the blue, Mike claimed that a local union hall was responsible for Alyssa's disappearance. Mike said that he was an electrician in the 80s and that they had a grudge against him and two men had followed Alyssa and possibly murdered her and that he found these two men and killed them because of what they supposedly did to Alyssa. But as it turns out, these two men were already dead, but due to natural causes. So now there's an even another story about what happened to Alyssa coming from Mike. Authorities finally were able to talk to Mike and they approached him as he was walking to the mailbox and they found that he had two pistols on him and seven loaded magazine clips and a knife on him. That's a lot of ammunition for one person to be carrying to the mailbox, don't you think? Mike was arrested and authorities were able to enter the house and at this point they found a total of 19 guns and 26 pipe bombs. What did Mike need 26 pipe bombs for? Along with these weapons, police also found a 98-page document titled Diary of a Madman Martyr. The manifesto also contained a document stating that the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers was behind the Alyssa's disappearance. That is the name of the union that Mike was referring to that was supposedly behind Alyssa's death. Mike reportedly planned to blow up the Union Hall to get his vengeance against the people he claimed had taken Alyssa. He allegedly wrote that he'd killed two assassins who murdered Alyssa. Mike Turney was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison in 2010. A podcast was created to help find Alyssa called Missing Alyssa, and Mike was actually interviewed by the show's host, and Mike claims that he never had any bombs in the house, that they were just fireworks to be used when he needed to create loud noises for whatever reason. And then he goes on to say that he was never planning to attack the Union Hall, but he was actually planning on going there to kill himself to help raise awareness for Alyssa, contradicting himself yet again. Sarah has created a website called Help Find Alyssa. There was a time that Sarah was actively trying to get her father free from prison. She truly believed he was innocent. Her last thought was her only parent left couldn't be taken from her too, and she needed to do what she could to get him back. So she acted as his legal assistant full-time, filing papers for him, sending off documents, and she basically did everything he asked her to do because she thought she was going to get him back. She had a group of family and friends stand behind her, so she didn't think it was as crazy as she thinks it is now. A year after the 2020 episode is when Sarah started to think he was guilty. Over time, nothing was adding up, so she stopped advocating for him. He laughs about it when Sarah questions him, and she asked him several times if he did this, and he said, Be there at the deathbed, and I will give you all of the honest answers you want to hear. I'm just saying hang around. That is such a chilling response. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Sarah is taking this comment as a confession from her father murdering her sister. And now her entire family, including her brothers, thinks he murdered Alyssa. Now this, I'm going to read to you what Sarah believes happened to Alyssa. I found this on, um, a YouTube video that she partnered up with a true crime YouTuber. Um, and I took this because I wanted to include this in the case because I kind of want to give you guys like everything I could find on this case I wanted to include. So that's where I found a lot, a lot of the, um, 
I don't want to say confessions, but a lot of what Sarah believes happened. And I got a lot of it from Sarah's point of view from that video. It was like a 40 minute long video. I wanted to kind of bring to you it to you from a member of her in Alyssa's family's perspective of what happened and less from kind of like an outsider point of view and just show you that even the family members thinks it's kind of messed up and um like her sister is kind of like oh my gosh what is going on so let me share with you what sarah's story of what she thinks happened to Alyssa. so she believes mike took Alyssa out to the desert tried to sexually assault her and she fought back and she said she was going to tell someone so he snapped he was in law enforcement, so he would know what to do. She also thinks that he thought out many times what to do before this, and she thinks he buried her relatively close. Came home, washed up, set up the scene, and went to go pick her up. She thinks he intended for Sarah to walk into Alyssa's room to find these things. Because why was she the first person to find these things? Hit the red button. Why? Hit the red button now. I don't want to. I don't record. Hit the red button. Sarah. I'm recording. Sarah. Sarah. Dad's a pervert. Yes, sir, give me the camera now. <laughs> and you're still recording. And Lissa is stupid moron. And Lissa's a stupid moron. Sarah and the detective said it's very important to get this case heard. Sarah has also asked people to use the hashtag justice for Alyssa to spread the word. She has also made a petition that demands Mike Turney goes to trial for the murder of her sister Alyssa. She needs 500,000 signatures total. Right now, they are currently at 133,872 supporters of this petition. It only takes a few short moments to sign this petition, and it's free. So if you want to help find justice for Alyssa, then I encourage you guys to all go sign that petition. But I will say that this case is very odd, and a lot of it doesn't make sense. There's a lot of stuff contradicting it in the case, contradicting itself. There's a lot of weird things that have been said in this case and there's a lot of random stories of what could have possibly happened to Alyssa pop up out of nowhere. I think that there's a lot of random what ifs in this case. I think there's a little more than normal. I think it's just someone trying to get the law off their back and out of their hair type thing. Um, but yeah, I think it's very odd. So I want to know what you guys think of this case. And if you guys could also spread the word, um, Sarah is working so incredibly hard to find justice for her sister. And like I said, detectives told Sarah to spread the word of this case. So once I caught wind of this case, I was like, you know what? I have to do an episode on this case. I've known about this case for probably about a year now. And, um, I just never really, you know, did anything with it. And then I recently, probably about, I want to say like three weeks ago, I finally um, re like looked at the case and I've been doing so much research since then. So this case has taken a lot of research. It's, this has definitely been a long episode. There's a lot to this case. I had like a, a 12 page word document on this case, like with just facts. So, um, 
yeah, I definitely think it's very important to spread awareness and to spread the word of this case. Tell everybody about this case. Share this case. Um, and let's find out what actually happened to Alyssa and provide Alyssa's family some closure. I think that, you know, it's about time that she gets justice. I mean, this happened in 2001. This happened long, long time ago. So, um, yeah, I think it's important that we spread awareness. And I also think that I know you guys are all little investigators. So I want you guys to go out there and to investigate on this case and to dig a little deeper and to let's all collectively find out what happened to Alyssa and make the person that did um, whatever they did to her pay. I think it's only fitting. So again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, if you guys can go over to my Instagram, like I said early in this episode and give me a follow. If you can also send me some cases you would like to hear, it helps me cater more to you, to you guys and to provide you guys with, you know, cases that you would like to hear. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I will talk to you guys in my next podcast episode.